Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Matt Gartner. Uh, he's a research officer, part of the Subarau Group from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, working on uh, SARS-CoV-2 type research. Previously, or he, he was part of uh, what's called RMIT, the Royal uh, Melbourne Institute of Technology, uh, where he got his, uh, his PhD. So I'm going to talk to Matt about his uh, previous work, I guess, on HIV and viruses in general, and perhaps maybe a little bit of SARS-CoV-2 stuff. We'll see. But Matt, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Probably the thing that you know most about, I guess, would be HIV and its infection mechanisms. Certainly more than SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I haven't talked to many people about HIV. Um, tell me a bit about your work surrounding that. Yeah, so my, my PhD essentially had two um, different goals, but they were both uh, surrounding the, the ability of HIV to establish a latent reservoir. So HIV infects CD4 T cells. Um, so they're one of our main immune cells. Um, and the infection either has two fates, a productive infection, which usually ends up killing the cell within about 24 hours, or a latent infection, which is essentially when the virus hides um, within that immune cell and our immune system doesn't realize that's infected. And this latent infection essentially um, allows the virus to persist in people living with HIV, even if they're on suppressive antiretroviral treatment. So the two questions I was really looking at for my PhD was how is HIV establishing this reservoir? So how is it infecting certain types of immune cells to then, uh, I guess, yeah, establish this, this reservoir? Um, and then also to understand how this reservoir is being maintained, what mechanisms are allowing these latently infected cells to persist even when antiretroviral therapy is, is supposed to be working. Well, all right. So in the immune cells, uh, does it, mostly kill the immune cells or does it kind of go into a uh, like a commensal or a latent stage with them and uh, stick with them for a while but not kill them? I, th I think for the most part it's it certainly leads to a productive infection especially when a patient isn't on treatment um, most of the time your yeah infection goes down the productive route where you're getting mass cell death but then when patients go on to antiretroviral treatment those drugs essentially block new cycles of replication. And because you're blocking cycles of replication, you're then forcing the, the route for any infection to go down a latent pathway, or you're just killing off any of the, the cells that could become latent, uh, productively infected, sorry. Okay, I mean, so I'm not sure, quite sure I understood, like uh, of the immune cells that are infected, do the immune cells like do any job? Or are they just kind of useless and hanging out and you know running around or like, or, they, or for the most part, it kills them? Uh, so for productively infected cells, it kills them. For latently infected cells, I believe they can still carry out some form of a, a job that they would normally have um, until they then become uh, productively infected and then they will also die as well. But what's the split? I mean, typically, like as the disease progresses or if it's been in someone for months or years, like, you know, how does that shake out? Um, 
you know, in terms of percentages that are infected, you know, like what, what factors change over if, if more productive infection occurs versus like latent? Um, I'm not actually a hundred percent certain on the, the split of how many cells are productively infected versus latently infected over disease. Having said that though, I guess in terms of a natural disease, the you've, you've kind of got three general stages of disease progression. You've got acute infection where there's a lot of productive infection and huge cell death. Um, the immune system then gets a, some form of a control over the virus. And then you get a clinical latency period, which can last you know, roughly about six to 10 years. Um, and in that period, there's a lot more latently infection occurring. And there's kind of an arms race between the virus killing off immune cells and the immune system generating new immune cells. And that kind of, that arms race of the virus slowly killing off cells, but also the immune system replenishing cells can, yeah, it can last about six years until you've then got not enough immune cells to really keep the virus in check. And that's generally when AIDS, um, arises when there's yeah, a lack of immune cells and then patients unfortunately succumb to secondary infections and and some cancers as well such as Kaposi's sarcoma so i mean this is a long time period what what appears to be happening over this long time period have people looked at it longitudinally to see what happens yeah i mean for the most part i i believe the clinical latency period is asymptomatic so yeah generally you you if you haven't picked up that you're HIV infected during acute infection, um, which is normally when flu-like symptoms can occur, um, yeah, you you won't know until, until AIDS essentially hits. Um, and I think that was a big problem back in in the 80s when yeah HIV was starting to take off in the US that no one really knew they had it until it was too late and they were diagnosed with AIDS um, or, or they showed up with these secondary infections in hospital. Oh, I mean, well, nowadays... I think people are tested at a much earlier stage. So are they put on antiviral drugs just, you know, is it of course, or do people wait? And see? Yeah. Um, so initially when they started coming out with it, these new antiretroviral drugs, they were only giving it to people who were diagnosed with AIDS. And then I guess with more studies, they learn, okay, the earlier we give this, the better. So now generally once people are diagnosed, they go straight on to treatment um, and Many studies have shown that the earlier you treat, the smaller the size of the HIV reservoir, which is that pool of latently infected cells um, within a HIV infected individual. Okay. So what was what was your focus in the research? What were you evaluating? I'll talk about the mechanisms maintaining the reservoir um, over time. So we essentially obtained samples, blood samples, and also gut and lymph node samples from um, males that were on suppressive antiretroviral therapy. Um, and we were basically tracking how the reservoir was changing over time in terms of its viral sequence. So we obtained these blood samples and, and gut and lymph node tissues, um, sorted out the different T cells, um, and we then performed single genome amplification, which is essentially a fancy way of saying a, a PCR at a limited dilution. So you're, you're diluting out your template DNA to increase your chances of getting um, more positive um, PCR products. So the idea is you're sampling a lot more of the reservoir instead of just doing one bulk PCR where you just get um, the, the, the one sequence that's uh, the highest proportion in that sample. Um, so we obtain all uh, sequences from these patients, phylogenetically analyze them over time. So we make phylogenetic trees out of them. 
And then we're looking for signs of either viral evolution or other um, mechanisms that could be helping the reservoir to persist. And what we saw um, in our phylogenetic trees was that there was very little signs of viral evolution occurring over multiple years. I think we were looking at about four years between, um, yeah, two certain time points after they went on treatment. So we found, yeah, very little signs of viral evolution suggesting these antiretroviral drugs are very good at blocking new cycles of replication, which that was that really was to be expected. Um, and what we instead found, a large percentage of sequences within a patient were actually identical. Now, um, given the, the error-prone nature of HIV replication and that it basically mutates every cycle of replication, it's quite unlikely that identical sequences arise from just separate infection events. And it might it, it more likely suggests that these, um, these lately infected cells are actually proliferating. And then, yeah, so that leads to an, an increase in these identical sequences. And the, I guess the overall message really is that this proliferation of immune cells is just the immune cells doing that job, but they're also latently infected with HIV. So while they're responding to a threat such as influenza or the, the vaccine that you had last week, that immune response is also helping to expand the HIV reservoir. How is it expanding the reservoir? I thought that, you know, so it doesn't just come from new um, T cells being made or like, like how does it expand it? So when you're during a general immune response, so you have a huge array of T cells and they generally have a T cell receptor that's specific to a certain pathogen. So let's say I have one certain T cell with a T cell receptor that's specific for influenza but that T-cell is also latently infected with HIV. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That T-cell recognizes the latest flu infection that you had. And during the immune response, the, that immune cell starts proliferating. So it makes or essentially divides into multiple um, different cells. And that expansion then increases the number of that HIV-infected clone in your blood. So you're expanding out the reservoir for one particular pathogen. And when you have that occurring for all these different pathogens we're interacting with, um, it's not hard to see that, yeah, this, this type of mechanism can certainly help HIV persist, even without needing to establish new infections, uh, new infection events, which I'm certain happens, but it's certainly a lot harder to detect using um, the, the methods that we were using, which was just sampling viral sequences, looking at diversity. And we, we can only sample a very small subset of the reservoir in a particular patient. Okay. What, what is the mechanism by which the antivirals work? And why do you think that's helping to keep the, uh, you know, the number of lightly infected cells down low? Um, so the antiretrovirals target the reverse transcriptase enzyme. They target integrase, so they prevent integration. Um, there's also antiretrovirals that target the protease to prevent maturation of new viral particles. So the, the idea of these antiretrovirals is that they don't clear cells that are already infected, but they do block new infection events. So as soon as someone goes on to treatment, uh, basically any productive infection that is occurring stops and the only cells that remain are the lately infected cells. And it's definitely likely that 
there's still some very small, low-level sporadic cycles of replication occurring when, you know, maybe the drug isn't getting to the right effective level in certain tissues. Um, so there certainly might be a little bit of replication occurring, but it essentially blocks a lot of, yeah, new cycles of, of viral replication once, once someone's on suppressive treatment. You know, are there, are there various mechanisms of the antivirals that are working? So reverse transcriptase essentially, it generates cDNA from the viral RNA template. To do this, it needs, a, I guess, a pool of nucleotides in order to generate cDNA. So these reverse transcriptase uh, inhibitors essentially mimic a nucleotide. And so during the process of reverse transcription, these essentially dud nucleotides will get inserted into the, the cDNA that's being generated and generate a basically a defective cDNA. So that cDNA that's been generated then won't be able to, to integrate and produce viral protein. So that essentially blocks the virus in its tracks, basically, because it prevents it from making a functional copy of itself within the cell. Uh, what, are, what are the trade-offs of that? One problem I would imagine um, for, for these certain types of inhibitors uh, is that they could possibly also prevent uh, DNA replication occurring, possibly, if they were to, to get into the nucleus. And yeah, that they could certainly slide into just DNA when it's been replicated and block DNA replication. Um, that could certainly be a problem and lead to toxicity. Do you know of any studies on the uh, the immune cells themselves to look at uh, the differences between lightly infected and significantly infected ones? You know, like what's different about them? Uh, so generally, normally uh, lightly infected cells will have a, a, a lack of certain transcription factors that can help the virus to generate copies of itself within the immune cell. Uh, so that's one general functional difference between a a lately infected and a productively infected cell. Lately infected cells also typically tends to have a resting phenotype. So they're not actively responding to a pathogen. And they also have lower uh, metabolism compared to uh, an active productively infected cell. I mean, now that your studies are done, what do you think is going to be the implication for, uh, you know, for monitoring HIV or you know, keeping it on? Yeah, um, so... I think the HIV field, I don't know, it's, yeah, so where we are now is the virus is, it's pretty well here to stay in people living with HIV. We, we know now that the immune system carrying out its function can essentially maintain HIV at the level that it needs to be maintained at to essentially a, a, the person infected is infected for their lifespan. And it looks like any potential cure strategy to, to clear this reservoir of cells is going to be very difficult to carry out. There's one strategy that I am fan of that's, I mean, it's people have been researching it for a while now. It's called the shock and kill strategy, where essentially you give compounds to, to shock latent cell into producing viral transcripts, viral protein, and then infectious virus. So that process then allows that infected cell to, to either be killed by the virus replicating itself, or hopefully that cell at least produces enough viral protein for the immune system to recognize it and kill it. This approach has probably been around for, I'm going to say at least five years now, um, and people have been trying to do it, and there's been clinical trials on it. And the, the agents used, they're called latency reversing agents. The ones that have currently been used in clinical trials are really good at inducing some transcription but they're not 
great at actually leading to, to virus production and to killing of the immune cells. So I think the HIV field is now looking at how to help recognise these cells that have been late, uh, latency reversed and, and kill them. And so there's, there's people looking at um, compounds to help induce apoptosis. There's people looking at trying to include broadly neutralising antibodies to try and help the immune system recognise these latency reversed cells. I'm really hoping that that's where we're, that that, that approach works because I think that's probably the most feasible cure strategy for, for people living with HIV, at least in my opinion. Okay. And then uh, j- just briefly, you said now you're going to be working on, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2. What's going to be like the focus of your project there? Yeah. Um, so I was, so our lab headed by Kanta Subarao, she's a, a flu expert, but she also was at the NIH for when SARS emerged in 2003. So she has a lot of experience. She designed um, micro-neutralization assays to, to look at antibody responses. Um, whether those antibody responses could neutralize virus. So we've set the same assay up um, in our lab and we're essentially doing a lot of the new assays for people who are developing monoclonal antibodies for for preclinical vaccine trials. And then we're also looking at testing antivirals as well because we have the capability to do so. So companies will go, hey, we have this interesting antiviral. Can we send it to you to see if it actually works um, in culture? So Essentially, we're a bit of a workhorse for doing neutralization assays and antiviral assays at the moment, but we're also very interested in SARS-CoV-2 pathogenesis in different organ tissue systems. So we have different um, organoid systems, such as heart and lung organoids, and we're also looking at SARS-CoV-2 pathogenesis within those um, organoids. So I was initially employed to help with the antiviral work. But so far, I haven't touched antiviral work. I've mainly been helping out with the neutralization assays just because we have such a large number to get done. Um, But I'm also starting to look into SARS-CoV-2 infection in cardiomyocytes, which is, yeah, one of the the, the muscle cells in the heart. Yeah, I've heard uh, there are a couple of researchers looking at that. Yeah, that's one of the primary. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like I'm slightly behind the ball, but yeah, (laughs) we are looking into it. I'm sure there's still, a, you know, it's early still. So I'm sure there's still plenty, plenty to learn. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, what's the best way for people, Matt, to find out more about uh, your current work? Uh, so I have a couple publications out um, on PubMed. So I guess if they search my name, Matthew Gartner or Matthew J. Gartner on PubMed, um, they'll certainly see the, the four publications that I have published in my time in my PhD. Um, I'm also on ResearchGate. So if they search my name on ResearchGate, they could probably come across me and follow me. And that's another way to yeah see in what work that I've been involved in. Okay, excellent. Well, Matthew, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.